This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with just me, Norman Swan, because Tegan is indisposed. Today, how a potentially curable form of high blood pressure is being underdiagnosed, grossly underdiagnosed, in Australia. A surprise finding in the brains of people receiving aggressive blood pressure treatment. The need to abolish the idea that there's, no, that there's such a thing as a transient ischemic attack. The idea that you get the signs of a stroke without it being a stroke. Wrong and harmful, according to an expert in the field. And a preprint study, meaning it is yet to be peer-reviewed, which reviewed the available evidence on treating COVID-19 with antibody infusions, particularly monoclonal antibodies. Those are ones that are highly targeted at aspects of the spike protein in particular. And it's found that, this review has found that in the early days of the pandemic, the doses were far too high, but things have changed with Omicron. One of the authors is Dr. Deborah Cromer, who runs the Infection Epidemiology and Policy Analytics Group at the Kirby Institute in Sydney. Welcome to the Health Report, Deborah. Thanks for having me. I should say welcome back. So this was a large number of studies. Yeah, no, it was a huge number of studies. Actually, the studies themselves came from a, a systematic re- review that was done um, on as part of the Cochrane database of systematic reviews. So it included all trials of monoclonal antibodies and, and convalescent plasma up until uh, the 7th of January, because with systematic reviews, you have to um, provide a cutoff date. And so this was uh, aggregated all these studies together and had a look at all the evidence and what we could um, understand from them as, as a body. And the key findings... Look, the key findings were that if you are going to use monoclonal antibodies as, as a treatment, they work really well when they're given early. So the earlier they can be given, the more effective they are. If they can be given prophylactically or um, after immediately after the onset of symptoms, they can be very effective at preventing severe disease. How are they, um, given, the prophylact- hand, how are they given prophylactically? What happens? Oh, look, they can be given to Im- immunocompromised people, could get an infusion um, maybe once a month. It's a very expensive way of treatment and I think we couldn't afford to do that for a lot of people. But people who can't their own antibody responses could be given an infusion on a regular basis. On the other hand, they can be given um, if we know that there's been an outbreak, say, in an aged care home, you could um, administer monoclonal antibodies to everyone in that care home who you knew was at risk of severe disease. So they're two different ways of giving them. And you found that at the, at the beginning, because a lot of these studies were done with the original virus, the Wuhan version right. of the virus, and the, the doses they tried were too high in many ways. We'll leave convalescent serum to, to one side because that's an awkward thing to use, but um, they were too high. Now, is that still true that the doses are are unnecessarily high? Yeah, look, initially they were given at large doses for what they wanted to have an impact, and we found by analysing it that there was sort of an optimal dose level that you could give that you essentially retained about 90% of the efficacy, but you could give much lower doses. On the other hand, now with the emergence of these variants, um, a a lot of them lose their ability to recognise the variants quite so well. And so now the doses that are being given are probably what's needed or even slightly less than what's needed to to deal with the Omicron BA1 and BA2 variants. And you find that from reviewing the evidence that um, that with sotrovimab in particular, which is the one that is just the mainstay, which, by the way, the Food and Drug Administration just withdrew in the United States for Omicron, um, there's a tenfold difference between BA1 and BA2. Yeah, look, there seems to be a, a really big difference. That's that in that 
analysis that aggregated um, the the data from I think um, four different studies, three each for BA1 and BA2, and um, there was a significantly worse um, recognition of BA2 than BA1. Um, these antibodies themselves they 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 target very specific um, sections of the virus. So if that particular section of the virus changes in one variant to another, then you're really going to see a, a reduced recognition by those monoclonal antibodies in that particular if if it happens to be in that particular area. So where do, where does it leave us with sotrovimab? Look, at, at the moment, it looks like it's, um, with the current dosing, it's got about um, sort of a 19 to 20% um, protection, we would estimate, against symptomatic disease, against um, Omicron BA2. We don't know what the next variant that emerges is going to be, whether that recognition will change. We also may be able to increase doses because citrovimab itself was given at a relatively low dose. Um, it was given at, at a, a dose that was sort of eight to possibly even tenfold lower than um, other antibodies were, were given at in its trials. So potentially increasing the doses or, or potentially um, we will need to, you know, provide a, a cocktail of antibody responses, uh, antibodies, monoclonal antibodies. Um, and we, we really have to see what the next variant that emerges is. So in other words, in other words, it's very hard to predict because you say they're highly, just finally, they're highly specific, these monoclonals. We may be in the situation which with the next variant, it none work. Uh, yes, we, may, we look. We may be in a situation where none of them work. We we may be in a situation where um, the the changes that ha, have been made, um, you know, the, the the deviation comes from a different area. We we also may be in a position um, where we can develop new monoclonals that are, are based on the variant. So these original monoclonal antibodies were and, and everything was developed from um, immune responses in people to the ancestral strain. So if we can develop uh, monoclonals that are uh, specific specifically responding to the um, immunity against the variants, it may put us in, in a better position going forward. Well, let's hope. Deborah, thanks for joining us. Okay, no worries. Thank you for having me. Dr. Deborah Cromer leads the Kirby Institute's Infection Epidemiology and Policy Analytics Group at the University of New South Wales. And this is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. You might have heard of someone having a temporary stroke. It's the signs and symptoms of a stroke, which after a while go away without treatment. The medical name for this has been a transient ischemic attack, or TIA. But a growing number of stroke experts think that the term TIA should be banished because it's actually harmful. One of those experts arguing to abolish transient ischemic attacks from doctor's language is Clay Johnson, who's professor of neurology at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You're talking about retiring the concept of transient ischemic attack. Before we get to what it might be replaced with, just for the record... What are the symptoms of a stroke? A stroke is a sudden onset of numbness or weakness in one part of the body, or it could be dizziness, it could be trouble understanding or speaking, it could be a decrease in vision in one eye. The key is that it's sudden and it's caused by an interruption of blood flow to a part of the brain. People have talked for years, many years, decades, about transient ischemic attacks. Now, they've always acknowledged this is a risk factor for a full-blown stroke, but I think you're arguing that we should get rid of it because it is, in fact, a stroke. Yeah, that's right. The notion before was that, you know, if the symptoms went away, then maybe you didn't need to worry. And then we discovered that, in fact, yes, you do need to worry, that the risk of having a full-blown stroke, even if your stroke symptoms went away, they were very high, particularly in the first few days to weeks after an episode like that. And then as we started to look under 
Behoud a little more, we discovered that almost everyone with these transient symptoms actually had evidence of permanent injury in their brain. And so it just became useless to have a distinct term. If you've had these sudden onset of symptoms that suggest your brain is not working properly, that is an emergency and requires emergent care, regardless of whether those symptoms are mild or not mild, and regardless of whether they seem to go away or not. And what's the damage that you see? When you do brain imaging studies, particularly with magnetic resonance imaging, MRI scans, you often see evidence of damage, permanent injury to the brain, the loss of neurons and the other tissue that supports the neurons in the brain. Do you believe that the perpetuation of the term transient ischemic attack has delayed people getting to hospital for definitive treatment? In other words, people have started to talk about strokes as brain attacks and the same as heart attacks. You really want to get to hospital ASAP so that you can get your clot dissolved or removed. Do you think the concept of transient ischemic attacks may allow people to think, well, I'm just going to hang on to see whether it's temporary? Yes, I think it's been confusing. I think for practitioners, it's also been confusing. Actually, the concept of brain attack is much simpler and reflects much more clearly how both the patient and the physician ought to behave. So you have a short-lived stroke. Do we know actually how to look after such a person? Because there's a three-hour window before you get your clot dissolved. How are they supposed to respond in an emergency department? If a person has basically a mild stroke, they may or may not be a candidate for breaking up a clot or retrieving a clot in a blood vessel, which is the the major cause of the strokes that we're talking about. But even if they're not, there are lots of other things that we do that are really important to reducing their risk of having more damage to their brain. And all of those things need to be started right away. Such as? For many, we want to block their clotting as best we can. And it ends up that agents that impact the platelet are the ones that are most effective for most people coming in with a stroke, with a minor stroke or TIA, or even with a more severe one. And that's always aspirin. And it may also include one of the newer agents that works with aspirin, like clopidogrel or ticagrelor. So a a double hit there. Yeah, to pound the, the platelet to keep it from continuing to clot and propagating a clot, making that whole episode more severe. Now, if we just continue the metaphor of brain attack, although stroke, for some reason, is not entirely similar to, even though the pathology looks the same, that you get a a blockage in the artery, usually in the neck, and a clot spins off into the brain, there are some differences there. But nonetheless, in, in a heart attack, or if you've got a heart event like angina, it's not just aspirin. You'll go on a blood pressure medication, even if your blood pressure looks normal, and you'll go on cholesterol reduction, even if your cholesterol looks normal. Are those similar interventions that you need after what used to be called a transient ischemic attack? Yes. You absolutely want to get someone's blood pressure back under control. You may wait a little bit before doing that, but that's a a critical intervention. And you want it to be lower than normal, just as you said, and um, there's data that supports that. And in addition, there there are data that support starting a statin even in people with normal uh, cholesterols, but also the clot can come from the heart. So the other thing we have to do is make sure the heart is working well and normally, that there's not atrial fibrillation, for example, and arrhythmia of the heart, because that would lead to a different treatment altogether and an important one, again, to get started soon. Because atrial fibrillation, the top of the heart quivers and you can get a clot forming there, which then spins off to the brain. 
Again, just using the heart metaphor or analogy, even if there was minimal damage, cardiologists would go in to open it up, either with a stent or with clot busting, more often than not a stent. Why wouldn't you do that in a transient ischemic if you're saying there is brain damage? Yeah, that's a great question. So if the artery that's abnormal that was the cause of the clot is in the brain, then the data don't support going in, opening it up, putting a stent in there. If it's in the neck, then the data do support either doing surgery or putting a stent in it. And finally, the narrative that people should have for themselves is that not that I've had a transient attack, I've had a mild stroke and that needs treatment. That's all they need to know, that they've had a a mild stroke and then all the things that we've tried to teach them about stroke just fall in line. So in the same way as you'd respond to chest pain by phoning for an ambulance, respond to the symptoms of a stroke in the same way. Exactly. The importance of emergency treatment, whether your symptoms have gone away or were relatively mild or whether they're more severe, the importance of that, it overwhelms you trying to wait to see your primary care doctor because you trust them. Claire Johnson, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for covering this important topic. Professor Clay Johnson is in the Department of Neurology at the University of Texas at Austin. You heard him talking about reducing the blood pressure after a stroke to below normal. That's been a big issue in blood pressure control, independently of whether you've had a stroke. And remember, high blood pressure is a toxic risk factor for stroke, dementia, brain aging and premature death. Let's assume you haven't had a stroke or a heart attack, but just have raised blood pressure. If lifestyle measures like weight loss, salt control, alcohol reduction and moderately intense exercise for at least 150 minutes a week aren't enough and medications are needed, the question then is, how low do you go? A healthy blood pressure where the top number is 120 or less. The top number is what's called the systolic blood pressure. It's the pressure when your heart beats and squeezes out a pulse of blood. If it's high, it batters the arteries around your body, especially in the neck and brain. So you'd think it makes sense to aim to get the blood pressure as near normal as possible, that 120 mark. But some doctors are nervous about that, feeling that in someone who's adapted to high blood pressure, such aggressive treatment might lower the blood supply to the brain and ironically perhaps cause a stroke. That's what a group of US researchers tested in a trial called SPRINT, which compared people with standard blood pressure control, where the physicians accepted a level of 140, to a more intensively treated group, where the aim was 120 or less. The study did MRI scans to look at cerebral blood flow, CBF, and got a surprise. Dr. Sudiptu Dalui was the lead author. Thanks for having me. So what did you find? We measured CBF at the beginning of the study, and after four years of following up in both treatment arms. What we found is quite interesting. Contrary to the expectation and concern of many clinicians, the intensive treatment actually resulted in a small increase of CBF after four years compared to the standard treatment. Note that although the CBF changes were small, this effect can improve brain health and protect against cognitive decline. CBF being cerebral blood flow, have you got any idea why it actually counterintuitively went up? Uh, the mechanistic basis actually remains uncertain, but the results suggest that the relationship between blood pressure and CBF is far more complex than a simple relationship between pressure and flow. You alluded to it, but if this is right, 
and reducing blood pressure down to what is actually a normal blood pressure rather than a compromised blood pressure, which is actually a bit high. What would be the implications for brain health? The study will give clinicians more confidence in implementing a strategy of more drastic blood pressure reduction. However, note that this is not a one-size-fits-all strategy. In other words, cerebral perfusion is not the only endpoint of a treatment strategy. For example, the intensive blood pressure treatment resulted in a greater incidence of acute kidney injury. They were like slightly higher incidence of falls in orthostatic hypotension in the intensive treatment group. So there people, were some people got effects. low blood pressure when they stood up. So clinicians need to take into account the complete health status before implementing an intensive blood pressure lowering strategy. So coming back to the implication though for the brain, which some people might be willing to accept in return for some other side effects, would you expect the risk of stroke to drop, the risk of dementia to drop if this effect persisted? The CBF changes were small, but it was higher than the standard treatment. And this effect can actually improve brain health and protect against subsequent cognitive decline. I mean, CPF has been shown to be associated with future occurrence of dementia and other cognitive declines. So this is important. So bottom line is that for doctors treating people with blood pressure, they can, if they accept the person as a whole and look at their total risk profile, they don't need to be worried about the brain so much. In fact, there may be some benefit. Previously, it was shown that the intensive treatment showed lower progression of white matter lesions as well, which is a structural correlate of ischemia. The white matter in the brain is really the nerves, the cabling of the brain, and you're getting less damage with that. Yes. I mean, there are like uh, the white patches that appears, you know, as people are aging. Of course, white matter lesions are increasing with time, but there is a, a lower progression of white matter lesions in the intensive treatment arm. But on the other hand, there was a slight decrease of brain volume. So we have increase in CBF, we have lower progression of white matter lesions, and those are on the positive side. But on the negative side, there was a slight decrease of brain volume. So research still needs to be done, like, you know, why there is this slight decrease. I mean, it, it went in the other direction. So what's the bottom line? So the bottom line is clinicians should be more confident in implementing a strategy, but at the same time, they should carefully monitor their patients based on their risk profile. And the message for consumers who've got high blood pressure? The consumer should be more comfortable in having their clinicians trying a more aggressive blood pressure reduction strategy as long as they don't have symptoms of like hypotension or they don't have kidney problems. Good. Look, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Dr. Sudipta Dalui is in the Department of Radiology at the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. The high blood pressure we've been talking about is what te the textbooks call essential hypertension, meaning that there's no diagnosable cause. And that's been thought to apply to almost everyone with high blood pressure. But research just published in the Medical Journal of Australia has found that what used to be considered a rare cause of high blood pressure and one in 1,000 1 1, people, actually occurs in one in seven, with significant implications for their treatment. This was David Wyatt's experience. He's talking to Tegan. I had gone in for a simple bruise, but then found my blood pressure was dangerously high. So the GP I was seeing analysed the blood pressure, and we did a lot of tests and had a lot of trouble getting the blood pressure down. It took about six months to find a set of medications that stabilised the high blood pressure. The doctor did a number of tests but said 
there's nothing obvious that is causing the high blood pressure and I'll be living with it for the rest of my life. It was pretty shocking, particularly when he said, basically, it's so serious that you could have a stroke or a heart attack at any time. Tell me about how you came to be involved in the research that June Young's group has been working on. I was very lucky. I was put into hospital because of arrhythmia, irregular heartbeat. You were lucky, weren't you? That sounds terrible. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't got to the lucky bit yet. (laughs) It was at the Monash. While they were looking for the cause of the arrhythmia, they put me in contact with a heart surgeon and a couple of other people. But someone, I don't know who, referred me to the Hudson Institute. And that's when I came in contact with June's group and they started their own tests and June suspected the possibility of primary aldosteronism and tested for that and sure enough, I did have that. I was pleased that something had been found, primary aldosteronism, and because it was treatable, it was good news to me. How does the medication you're on now compare to what you were using before to manage your blood pressure? It's a lot less. So there's really only one main pill involved as opposed to a combination of three that I had to take continuously. In my case, I wish we had found that high blood pressure a lot earlier. I just think it's so important. High blood pressure often runs in the family, but too often it's just put down as unknown and a chronic condition. David Wyatt. So what is primary aldosteronism? How is it diagnosed and how come so many people have been missed? Dr June Young is an endocrinologist at the Hudson Institute and Monash Health in Victoria and led a survey in 31 general practices in Melbourne screening nearly 250 people newly diagnosed with high blood pressure. Welcome to the Health Report, June. Hi, Norman. Very excited to be here. We're excited to have you. What is primary aldosteronism? Well, primary aldosteronism is a bit of a mouthful. It's essentially a hormone cause of high blood pressure. As you said before, I've always been taught that high blood pressure is very rarely due to an underlying brute cause. But in primary aldosteronism, the body or the adrenal glands make too much aldosterone. And that's a hormone that tends to keep our salt levels and fluid levels in balance. So you can imagine if you have too much of it, then the body kind of retains salt, retains a lot of fluid, And so the blood pressure goes up. But what's more, aldosterone itself has been shown to cause damage to blood vessels, heart and kidney with the effect that's above and beyond the effects of high blood pressure. And so the patients with this condition are actually more likely to suffer heart attacks, strokes and kidney failure. Because it's compounded by the effects of the aldosterone itself. And we'll come back to the treatment because some drugs already on the market do combat part of this system. But we'll come back to that in a minute. The... Is it genetic? Is it passed pass down in families? It can be in the minority of cases. Um, but at the moment, it's so underdiagnosed that we don't think we know exactly you know, what proportion are running families. But certainly in, um, fam- in people who have a family history of high blood pressure, it could still be due to their prim- um, an underlying root cause, such as primary aldosteronism. And you found that there's a 13-year gap before diagnosis, and often it's too late. Well, not too late, but it's late. We've already got kidney damage, for example. Yes, that's right. I guess that's one of the reasons that really drove me um, to pursue this line of research, because in the current guidelines, um, primary aldosteronism tends to be um, portrayed sort of in the, as an afterthought, as a if all else fails, then think about an underlying cause for the high blood pressure. If it's really hard to control despite four medications, then think about it. But by that stage, 
patients have often had high blood pressure for many decades and they probably already suffered damage that could have been prevented if we test for it early, which is why we did this research and we asked GPs to test for primary aldosteronism in patients who have not yet been started on medications. Because the medications could affect the diagnosis because they, they might affect the aldosterone. It, well, one reason is that we want to um, get to it early. So before people have those decades of um, hypertension. And the second reason, as you said, is that commonly used medications can interfere with um, the result, the aldosterone um, test. So just as a personal anecdote, my own father had high blood pressure for about 20-odd years and it was poorly controlled. He was already taking four medications and yet his initial test for it was negative. But it was only after I changed his medications over to medicines which don't interfere with the aldosterone measurement, then we got the positive result. Because it was, that, it was, it was that, hidden. And it's a simple blood test. That's right. It was marked. Yes, it is a simple blood test that can be ordered by any GP or any doctor. Um, and it's a, a very useful test to do. And in some people, surgery is the treatment and it cures you. That's right. In about 20 to 30% of people, um, it may it's one adrenal gland that's overactive. Um, and in that case, you can actually do surgery, take out that adrenal gland, and the disease is cured. Um, in the majority of patients, it's um, they have two adrenal glands, which are both a bit overactive, making aldosterone. And you need and your adrenal case, glands. You need your adrenal glands, so you can't cut both out. And so we have a medicine that's highly effective that specifically blocks the effect of aldosterone. Which and that medicine's been around for many years. What medicine is that? It's called spironolactone. Um, some people may know it as a diuretic, a fluid tablet. Some people might take it to help prevent hair loss. Um, so it's used commonly, but not for this particular purpose. And at the moment, if you look at the high blood pressure treatment guidelines, it's considered a fourth-line treatment or fifth-line treatment for high blood pressure. And but for a patient who has this disease, it really should be their first-line treatment. Is this something that everybody who's diagnosed with high blood pressure should have? Should everybody have this test? I mean, if, you, if it's one in seven and it's treatable and it's a cheap test, that, that meets the criterion for screening, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that's what we're working on. Um, because at, at the moment, um, as I mentioned in the guidelines, it comes up too late. Um, through our research and research from around the world, we have really demonstrated that if you test for it early, you can still find a lot of people with the condition. And that's the ideal time to diagnose it so that you can prevent the harmful effects of aldosterone, prevent the harmful effects of high blood pressure, and um, get onto a treatment that specifically targets the root cause of the problem. Now, if you've already got high blood pressure and you're on treatment, is the hallmark that it's been hard to treat? Is that the classic sign of it? Yes, that's right. So if, just like my dad, if you're already on treatment and your blood pressure is not perfect, then that's definitely a reason to see your GP um, to discuss uh, testing for this condition. Now, you do have to be careful that uh, we never recommend patients just stop medications themselves in order to get the test. So the GPs can help to switch medications to ones which don't interfere so that the test can be done safely and reliably. And just finally, there's going to be a lot of people listening to us of all ages. There's plenty of people in their 30s and 40s who've got high blood pressure and need to have it yes. controlled. What are the questions that you should be asking your doctor? I think the question, the simple question is, do you think there could be an underlying cause for my blood pressure? 
um, a hormone course, well, perhaps. Well, most GPs and, would say, well, no, because most, most, they, they've got this misconception that it's, there's no obvious cause for most high blood pressure. In that case, it may be helpful to either look up the Hudson website or the primary aldosteronism website and bring some printed materials. And hopefully many of the GPs and doctors out there are listening as well um, and are going to be more receptive to hearing this request from their patients to have the test done. Um, and of course, our job is to actually change the practice guidelines, hypertension management guidelines, Good luck so it. that it becomes more system, um, systematically um, evaluated. June, thanks for joining us. Thank you for your time. Dr. Jun Young is head of the Endocrine Hypertension Group at the Hunston Institute of Medical Research at Monash University in Melbourne. This has been the Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Tegan will be back with you next week along with me. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.